Uh, If you have a Bible uh, this evening, we're looking at Hebrews and chapter 1. Hebrews and chapter 1. And we're thinking this evening of the Lord Jesus as being superior to the prophets. Would you rate Tesco above Asda? If so, what is it about the one supermarket that makes it superior to the other? Is it where they source their food? Or is it the packaging of the food? Or is it the layout of the store? Not to mention the staff, of course. Or is it the pricing of the goods? Or is it really all down to the taste of the products? And then, where does Marks and Spencer's food section rank in relation to the superstores? Is it beside them? Is it above them? Is it beneath them? And where, even within one store, do we rank the products? We often have a choice of similar products. We rate shop-branded mayonnaise against Helms and Heinz as we determine which one to purchase. Now, the early chapters of the book of Hebrews are all about ranking. Not about ranking products, but people. Its key message in the early chapters is, as we'll see, God willing, that far above all people is the Lord Jesus Christ. And what a pertinent message this was for the readers of this letter. All kinds of pressures were being felt by them to leave Christ and Christianity. There were pressures from Old Testament Judaism with its God-given temple, sacrifices and rituals to leave Christianity, the life of faith and Jesus, the fulfiller of the Old Testament and to return to the fold of Judaism. Pressure came from within their families. Family gatherings were awkward. Jewish uncles and aunts would express their disgust and disappointment with those who had converted to Christianity from Judaism, leaving the Christians feeling isolated and afraid. Pressure came from their business contacts. Business relations and transactions were strained because their Christian faith and some Christian businesses were boycotted. But pressure to abandon Christianity and Jesus was also being exerted by the state at this time when Hebrews was written. Christians were unpopular in the Roman Empire for following a rival king, Jesus, and for denying the validity of the other honoured Roman gods. Cairns writes, the exclusive sovereignty of Christ clashed with Caesar's claims to his own exclusive sovereignty. Christians were being blamed for Roman armies being defeated on the battlefield and for disasters in nature within the Roman Empire because they did not appease and honour the Roman gods. So Christianity was spoken about with contempt and suspicion by the state. That was on the verge in AD 60s of being outlawed when this letter 
was being written. So leave Christ and Christianity and return to Judaism was the message of many in their society and family at that time. Honor the gods or else was the message of the state to the readers of this letter. The book of Hebrews responds to that powerful pressure and temptation being felt by these early Christians by showing the readers and by showing us that what Christians have is better. During the years 1531 to 1541, Christians in Europe were in a similarly challenging place. Pressure and temptation was being exerted on them to abandon the new Reformation movement. Nick Needham, the historian, observes that in those ten years, the Reformation lost some of its momentum. It was a period of great temptation to those who had embraced the doctrines of the Reformation to abandon them. Books were being burned. People were being martyred that sided with the Reformation. Such public and terrifying acts sought to weaken the resolve of the followers of Jesus. We need to hear this message of Hebrews tonight, don't we? We feel the intellectual pressure on us to give up our belief in creation and adopt the widespread view of evolution. To give up our belief in the Bible as God's word with ultimate authority and to consider it merely as a holy book. To resign our conviction of the exclusivity of Jesus as Savior and to recognize all religions as equally valid. To ditch the values of Jesus and embrace the values of our modern society. And Hebrews is speaking to us and encouraging us not to give up on following Jesus because Jesus is better. The argument the writer uses, possibly Barnabas, possibly Apollos, writing in the 60s, is to show the superiority of Jesus to various elements within Old Testament Judaism. We will see this in our studies, God willing, that he selects various segments and elements and takes them individually and, and shows how Jesus is superior to those great and outstanding elements of Old Testament Judaism. Though they were given by God, though they were useful, Jesus is greater. And we get this argument, don't we? Why have a silver dish on your sideboard when you can have a golden dish? Why use a candle to read when you can use an electric light? Why hold on to Judaism with its types and shadows when you can have Jesus, the substance and fulfiller of those types and shadows? And so in this first section in the book of Hebrews, verses 1 to 3, the segment extracted from Judaism that the writer pulls out and revolves before our eyes and 
scrutinizes and sets in its place at the very feet of Jesus as the Old Testament prophets. Why then, do you ask? The Old Testament prophets were the outstanding and revealed, revered leaders in Old Testament Judaism, the pillars of Judaism. Moses, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel were the very mouthpieces of God to the people and nations, bringing the very words of God to them. God did not speak directly to all the people, but he spoke through these chosen prophets. After the fall, the prophets were the mediators between God and man, communicating the words of God to humanity. The main idea in a prophet, of course, is not to foretell, as we often think, the future, but rather to foretell. The very words of God. In Exodus 7, perhaps you remember, Aaron is described as a prophet to Moses. Moses will give Aaron his words, and then Aaron, as a prophet, will speak those words. He'll foretell the word. That's how great these men and women in the Old Testament were. How privileged, how important. How honoured to speak the very words of God. Though at the time, they were often despised and not listened to. You remember Jeremiah was plunged into the dungeon. Hosea mentions in his prophecy the view of the people of prophets in his time. In chapter 9 verse 7, the prophet, he says, is considered a fool. The man of the spirit is mad was the opinion of his society. Daniel mentions the ill treatment of the prophets. In chapter 9, verse 6, he says, We have not listened to your servants, the prophets. Often they were despised in their time in the Old Testament, but in New Testament Judaism, they were revered. They were esteemed. And the argument of the six days by Judaism was, You cannot leave a religion defined, defended, and embraced by the prophets of God. So addressing that claim, the writer shows in the book of Hebrews and in verses 1 to 3 that in three ways Jesus is superior to the Old Testament prophets. And therefore he and his religion of Christianity, the life of faith, is the one to be followed by us. Firstly, in his revelation. Secondly, in his person. Thirdly, in his action. Superior, firstly, in his revelation. The revelation of God in the Old Testament, as we've been saying, came through the prophets in verse 1. The revelation of God through Jesus of Nazareth was superior to that Old Testament revelation in two ways. In the time and in the manner. Think of the time. Great and privileged though the prophets were to be the mediums of divine revelation from God. 
one person was not enough. And this is evident in the two elements of succession and contemporaries. This really sounds like a Puritan servant. We're not only on the first point and the first sub-point, we're on the, the first sub-sub-point. Anyway, okay, in two ways, succession, think about it and how amazing this is, how great Jesus is. Succession, they needed those who succeeded them and contemporaries. Succession. There were many prophets in the Old Testament, weren't there? Stretching from Moses to Malachi. Succession indicates the insufficiency of one person, one prophet, to be the communicator of God's word. You remember Elisha succeeded Elijah. Jeremiah succeeded Isaiah in the role of prominent prophet. The succeeding prophet carried on and added to the message of the previous prophet. No Old Testament prophet wrote the whole of the Old Testament and no Old Testament prophet wrote the final chapter of God's revelation. Succession of the prophets indicates the insufficiency of one person. And then contemporaries also emphasize the insufficiency of one. Jonah, Amos, Hosea, and Isaiah were contemporaries. The divine revelation was bigger than one prophet. Not one person could communicate all of God's word, even in one generation. Many prophets were needed over many years or at one time. And so we read in verse 1, Long ago, at many times, God spoke by the prophets. But in contrast to that long line of prophets, God has, verse 1, in these last days spoken to us by his Son. In contrast to the many communicators of God's revelation, by succession and by contemporaries, there is one communicator now of his word, his Son Jesus, the lone, the solitary, the single Jesus is big enough, is great enough to be the communicator of God's message without need of contemporary to share the burden or successor to add to the message. The phrase, in these last days, indicates the supremacy of God's revelation in Jesus. It's a common New Testament expression rooted in Numbers 24 verse 14 which describes the New Testament era from Pentecost to the second coming of Jesus. It's not a chronological term so much indicating that we're in the last chapter of the history of humanity but it's also a climactic term. Last days mean supreme days. 
elevated days. Yes, days of the new covenant. Yes, days of the coming of the Spirit. Yes, days of Gentile conversion. But also days of the fullest revelation of God in Jesus. So all the focus, all the attention is to be on Jesus. Not to be looking over our shoulder at the prophets in Judaism, but our attention firmly on the supreme revelation of the solitary, the lonely, the only Son, Jesus. John the Baptist steers us in this direction, doesn't he? He got the point. He was a prophet in the Old Testament vintage, but he recognized the supremacy of Jesus. And so he said, his shoes latch it. I am not worthy to untie. He must increase, but I must decrease. The time of the prophets, Jesus is superior to. But secondly, the manner the revelation to the prophets, Jesus is superior to. Linked to the superior time is the superior manner of the revelation of God. Chapter 1 verse 1 states, in many ways God spoke to the people. This may be a reference to Numbers 12, 7, which we read, where various ways by which God communicated his revelation to and through the prophets are mentioned. To the prophets, he used dreams and visions. Through the prophets to the people, he used miracles and messages. Therefore, in the Old Testament communication through the prophets, God was always at a distance from the people. His word came indirectly to them by the message and by the miracle of the prophet. And even when he was speaking to the prophet, there was visions and dreams used so that the distance between God and the people was even broadened. But now, God has spoken fully and finally in Jesus Almighty God and Jesus has come down from heaven to speak to man and as man dwarfing his communications with the prophets. There's no gap, no barrier, no gulf between God and man in Jesus. Howell Jones in his, his wonderful commentary on Hebrews, Welshman, he writes, one and the same God speaks in the Old Testament and the New Testament. There is harmony between them, but they are not to be equated. The manner of the New Testament revelation is superior. But now, the writer says, he speaks to us in his Son. Martin Luther used a funny illustration of the difference between reading the Bible in the original language of Greek and Hebrew and reading a translation of the Bible as in the King James or in the ESV. And he said the difference between reading in the translation and reading in the original was like a groom kissing his bride through her veil. Imagine doing that. And this is the idea here, isn't it? Prophets brought God's word, but they were intermediaries. 
But in Jesus, God is with us, speaking to us. And so as we read the Old Testament, we're to let the light of the New Testament shine into the Old Testament passages. When we lift a children's book, we we don't blot out our adult, mature, grown knowledge and understanding, but we, we take it and we apply it to the buses and the tractors and the geese of the children's book. That, that vast knowledge we've attained as we've grown older, we use to, to bring it to life. And so as we read the Old Testament, we, like, we let that superior revelation in Jesus shine into the chapters and the pages that are there. Perhaps we'll use the central references in the Bible to connect Old Testament and New Testament. Perhaps you can splash out and buy the Reformation Study Bible, which is helping me find Christ in every chapter of the Minor Prophets. Jesus is superior in his revelation. Secondly, he's superior in his person. And this is the natural point to develop, isn't it? The superior revelation is in God's Son. But who is the Son? And so the writer lingers over this phrase, the Son, in verses 1 to 3. And he unpacks what's involved in being God's Son. He mentions two points. He's heir. In his nature he is God. And in doing this, he shows us the supremacy of Jesus as the communicator of God's revelation above the Old Testament prophets. They were great, but nowhere, nowhere as great as this. He's the son. A son then, he is heir. Verse 2, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Jesus, a son of God, is heir of all things as King Charles is heir to all Queen Elizabeth had and you are heir to your parents' estate. <clears throat> Controversial thing to say in Yutnar's congregation, fathers and children sitting here, but there you are. <clears throat> but we know that natural connections do not always guarantee that a descendant will inherit. A will is usually written in which the heir to the inheritance is identified and established. The legal document clarifies and determines the point about inheritance. And this is the idea in this statement here. Jesus is the Son of God. And one evidence of his sonship is that he is heir of all things. This natural heirship has been officially established by God in our verse. He appointed the heir of all things. The reference to this appointment of Jesus as heir is in Psalm 2, of course. There God speaks to Jesus as later on in our chapter we read, You are my son. Ask of me. And I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And implied in the psalm and interpreted by this author, Jesus did ask. And God did appoint him the heir of all things. And so from this Old Testament psalm, 
This aspect of Jesus as son is emphasized. He is heir of all things. We recognize King Charles as heir of the Queen's estate is on a very different level to us. Think of the titles he's inherited, of the castles he now owns, of the estates which he can ride on horseback through, of the palaces that he can live in, and the millions that are now in his bank. We can't begin to imagine his inherited wealth and power, but on a far greater scale, Jesus is heir of all things. No one, Old Testament prophets included, can hold a candle to this. This is the absolute supremacy of Jesus the Son. Tease this phrase out in your minds and worship before him. Heir of all things, material and spiritual things, animate and inanimate things, heaven, earth and hell, birds, animals, fish, humans, nations, individuals, angels, demons, mankind, Men, women, planets, stars, orbits, galaxies, all things are in his sovereign possession and under his management. B.F. Westcott claims the word heir marks the original purpose of creation. The dominion originally promised to Adam has been gained by Jesus, but much more than his perfect humanity is indicated by heirship. His sonship is indicated. Jeremiah the prophet owned a field for a time. Jesus is heir of all. Isaiah and Ezekiel prophesied against the nations. Jesus governs those nations. He's superior to Old Testament prophets as heir of all things. John Trapp, the commentator, expresses an evangelical application of this point. He says, be married to this heir and then have all. And this point strengthens the argument that's been made here, doesn't it? That we and the Old Testament prophets are are heirs of the future glory of God only through union, marriage to the Lord Jesus. But he is heir by virtue of him being the eternal Son of God. Superior in his person as heir, but also superior in his person as divine. As son of God, the author argues, Jesus is not only heir, but he is God. As son of God, he possesses the divine nature, just as our sons and daughters possess our human nature. In his consideration of the divinity of Jesus, the author mentions the oneness of Jesus with God and the distinctness of Jesus from God the Father. 
The oneness of Jesus with God. This is indicated in the phrase in verse 3. The radiance of the glory of God. Now this word radiance, it can mean refulgence. Or it can mean effulgence. Refulgence is reflection. As the moon reflects the sun. But effulgence is a ray emerging from that original light. The ray is part of the light. Possesses the attributes of the light. And it's this latter idea of effulgence that the context demands that we understand here. The radiance of the glory of God. Describing the relation of Jesus to God the Father as his Son. He's the effulgence, the outshining, the ray of glory coming out of the Godhead of all the attributes of God. He made this claim in John 14. He who has seen me has seen the Father. That's the radiance of the glory of God. The Nicene Creed explained this oneness of Jesus with God the Father as God of God. Light of light. Of one substance with the Father. No diminution. Weakening. Lessening. Tailing off in Jesus' nature. God of God. Light of light. William Gooch, the Puritan commentator, writes, Whatever excellency was in the Father, the same likewise was in the Son. The radiance of the glory of God. But then the writer makes a distinction between Jesus and God the Father in the other phrase that that he uses here, the exact imprint of his nature. The word imprint is used of the mark left by a seal in wax. The same mark in the wax is on the seal, but distinct from it. There's exactness in corresponding details, but also distinction in the two seal marks. The imprint is much more than a reflection. There's the actual shape of the seal in every detail. So Jesus is all that God is, but is a distinct person. From the Father. Moses, Elijah, Samuel, Jeremiah were godly prophets, but human and imperfect. Each had a beginning and an end. Jesus, as Son of God, is one with God, the radiance of the glory of God, and yet distinct from God the Father, the exact imprint of his nature as such. He's superior in his person to the prophets. And lastly, superior in his action. 
The author continues his emphasis on the supremacy of Jesus to the prophets in his revelation, in his person, as heir and divine, and in his action. The Son is superior to Old Testament prophets in what he has done, and he identifies two main actions of Jesus, his atonement and him sitting down at God's right hand. The atonement effected by Jesus, the Son. Verse 3, after making purification for sins. The term purification is rooted in the Old Testament ceremonial practices. Sin is considered by the Bible to be defilement, filth, dirt in us. But the atoning death of Jesus makes purification for sins. David McWilliams explains it, makes atonement for, satisfies divine wrath, removes our guilt. In his death, Jesus, the one we're being called to follow, the one we're being called to resist all pressures to turn away from, Jesus single-handedly bore the guilt of sinners and suffered the judgment of God for them. And thereby made purification for sins. The Old Testament prophets suffered with their people. And by their people, Jesus suffered for his people. The prophets pointed to this great work of atonement. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised. For our iniquities. The phrase used here is in the aorist middle participle, meaning that the work has been completed, hence the translation in our version after making purification for sins. The work is completed, no self atonement is needed or allowed by us, nothing to be added to the finished work of Christ. We wouldn't dare. To improve on a Picasso painting or Michelangelo sculpture, so our hands are to go nowhere near the atoning work of Jesus Christ. We are to receive his perfect sacrifice in the assurance that as we receive it, we will be forgiven. The second work is that he has sat down. At the right hand of the majesty on high. Think of that. He placed himself. He actively sat down in the highest position of power and glory in the universe. The right hand of God. Psalm 110, quoted later on in the chapter in verse 1, emphasizes that Jesus, in doing this, was not in rebellion or competition against God, but that God invited him to do this. The Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand, the place of absolute power, glorious dignity, supreme reward, the completion of his redemptive work, The place of victory and triumph. He has sat down 
at God's right hand. The bones of Jeremiah and Isaiah and Habakkuk are lying in some grave somewhere in Israel. But Jesus, the one we're being called to pursue and follow, is seated at the right hand of God. And there he continues to work. He upholds, verse 3 says, the universe by the word of his power. Having created the world, he upholds the world. John Brown explains the significance of the universe being held by Jesus. He says, it is prevented from running into confusion or reverting to nothing. The whole universe hangs on his arm, upholding it by the word of his power. Everything prevented from descending into chaos by the mighty power of Jesus, upholding gravity and winds and oceans and meteorites and the ozone layer and the sun movements. The word uphold means more than sustaining. means that he is moving the universe to its appointed goal. It's more than Atlas carrying the world on his back with sweating forehead and, and buckling knees. He's guiding, steering, directing all things to its final goal. Our joys, our trials, our losses, our failures included. Superior in his revelation. Superior in his person. Superior to the prophets in his action. One of the stunning features of the book of Hebrews, as we've already said, is that the writer launches straight into his theme. There's no warm-up, no introduction, no author or recipient named, no greeting as is common in the other letters. And this leads commentators to consider Hebrews to be a sermon rather than a letter. It's called in chapter 13, verse 20, a word of exhortation. But whatever the reason... The writer doesn't begin with a whip, but with the carrot. The application will come. The rebukes will arise. The tellings off will appear. The warnings will be stark and scary. But before all of that, he lingers over the glory of Jesus. For us to persevere in the Christian walk and in Christian service and the humdrum chores of our life, we need to dwell on the glories of Jesus. David McWilliams, in his absolutely outstanding commentary on Hebrews, says, Get out of yourself and into Jesus. Be absorbed with his love, his cross, his person, his work, 
or using the titles of our sermon tonight, his revelation, his person, his action. Maybe you're here tonight and you're disappointed at not being elected to be an elder today. Maybe some men are disappointed. Well, this message is for you. Be absorbed with the glory of Jesus. Or maybe you have been elected to be an elder. This message is also for you. Be absorbed with the glory of Jesus. He's far greater than every one of us. All of us then are to lose ourselves completely in him. For such is his greatness in every way.